Good evening. The longtime leaders of Sri Lanka are ousted by demonstrators who seized the government building in the Indian Ocean Island nation. Sergey Lavrov blames the United States for the lack of progress and peace in the G20. Women march on the White House to demand more action by President Biden on abortion rights. And a woman author talks censorship. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI Evening News. Protesters in Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo, continue to occupy the offices of the president and prime minister for a second consecutive day, vowing they'll stay put until both officially have resigned. Thousands of people stormed the president's residence yesterday, later setting fire to the prime minister's house, forcing the two leaders into hiding. Sri Lanka's prime minister said he will leave office once a new government is in place, while the Speaker of Parliament said President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, 73, would step down as president on Wednesday. But protesters are refusing to budge until the two leaders have officially left their posts. Our struggle is not over, a student leader told reporters today. We won't give up this struggle until he actually leaves. Images of people swimming in President Rajapaksa's pool and running on the treadmills of his private gym have gone viral across the world marking a dramatic end to the powerful Rajapaksa clan's two-decade hold over power in Sri Lanka. Meanwhile, opposition parties were meeting in the capital on Sunday to agree to a new government. Pressure on both the president and prime minister has grown as the country's economic meltdown has led to acute shortages of essential items, leaving people struggling to obtain food, fuel, and other necessities. Analysts say there are many pitfalls ahead, including decisions on whether or not to go for an IMF-backed debt rescheduling or simply stop acknowledging Sri Lanka's crushing debt. And dozens of Ukrainian emergency workers labored today to pull people out of the rubble after a Russian rocket attack smashed into apartment buildings in eastern Ukraine, killing at least 15 people. More than 20 people were believed still trapped. The strike late Saturday destroyed three buildings in a residential quarter of the town of Chazivyar, inhabited mostly by people who work in nearby factories. Saturday's attack was just the latest in a series of strikes against civilian areas in the east even as Russia claims it's only hitting targets of military value. 21 people were killed earlier this month when an apartment building and recreation area came under rocket fire in the southern Odessa region. Another at least 19 people died when a Russian missile hit a shopping mall in the city of Kremchunk in late June. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he saw no indications that Russia was seeking to engage with diplomats at the Group of 20 or G20 summit in Indonesia over its invasion of Ukraine. He said, we saw no signs whatsoever that Russia is prepared to engage in meaningful diplomacy. It happened yesterday following the G20 gathering on the resort island of Bali. Blinken continued, if there's an opportunity for diplomacy, we will seize it. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov stormed out of the closed-door G20 session on July 8th after the United States and its allies condemned Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. He had this to say about the meeting. If the West wants to talk, it needs to make room for discussion. If it wants Ukraine's victory over Russia on the battlefield instead, because both opinions are being voiced, some favor negotiations and others favor military victory, then perhaps we have nothing to talk about with the West. Because this approach is essentially preventing Ukraine from transitioning to the peacemaking process. And that was Sergei Lavrov. He's the foreign minister of Russia. He left a morning session and an afternoon meeting before Ukrainian foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba addressed the ministers through a video link. 
across the world. The Red Hill Bulk Fuel Facility sits under a mountain ridge on the island of Oahu, an unassuming mountain of iron-rich basalt, the vestige of ancient lava flows concealing the single largest fuel repository in the world. Oahu is where Honolulu, the capital of Hawaii, is located, as is the uh, naval port known as Pearl Harbor and the air base known as Wickham Field. A recently released report by the United States Navy says that last November, pipes holding jet fuel at the naval storage facility burst after a driver inadvertently bumped a valve, spewing tens of thousands of toxic gallons into the environment for 30-plus hours. Hundreds of families living around Pearl Harbor were later sickened by drinking or showering in contaminated water. The leak was just 380 feet away from the well. According to a Navy investigation, an estimated 19,000 gallons of fuel and water burst from a fire suppression line and seeped underground, and up to 5,542 gallons of fuel were never recovered. Just released video shows the actual jet fuel geyser in a tunnel. A 22-year-old spouse of a sailor living on the base said that they had no idea their drinking water had been poisoned by jet fuel until she and friends got sick after Thanksgiving dinner. I used to live on AMR, Aliamanu Military Reservation. Um, I lived there for the last three years. Um, in the past three years, I had had a bunch of random medical issues. I had actually back in 2019 a cardiac arrest issue. And ever since then, my doctors told me it was mental. It must have been in my head. I was getting really sick. I was losing a lot of weight. Um, and then flash around to Thanksgiving of this last year, my friends and I all ate together. We all that night got super, super sick, and we found out a few days later that the Navy had poisoned our water and that we all used that water to prep our Thanksgiving meal together. Um, and ever since then, our life has been kind of a spiral of crazy. We were uh, displaced from our homes and put in hotels for all of the holidays. Um, my dogs and I were split up for five months. Um, <laughs> and how do you know it was the Navy that poisoned the water? How'd that go down? Um, so the Navy has a Red Hill storage fuel storage facility that um, they store their fuel a couple hundred feet above most of the island's aquifer in their drinkable water. And um, since they've set up, they've leaked. So the jet fuel's leaking like, into the water that yeah, people drink? hundreds of thousands of gallons into our water. And do you know, like, do you smell the jet fuel when you drink the water or it comes out of your faucet? Back at the beginning of this, yeah, we did notice um, a smell and a little bit of a taste. And, you know, at the time when we were getting sick, you know, you just, you make tea, you make water, you drink water, you make soup, you all these things that included the water and we were just making ourselves sicker and sicker and sicker until they finally told us what they've been doing to us for months. At that point, did they offer you some sort of bottled water or clean water? They did offer us bottled water pickup, but it was based on how many people you had in your family is how much you could pick up for the day. Um, they had potable water, but they wouldn't tell us where it was sourced from. <laughs> so that was a little weird. Uh, a lot of people weren't really comfortable using that. Um, so from that point, we were in our hotels. We were showering there, only consuming bottled water. I was hauling for my family 25 gallons of water a day by myself. To and that was a person who was affected by the leak of thousands of gallons of jet fuel near the military bases in Oahu, Hawaii. The Navy says it will decommission the Red Hill Underground Fuel Storage Facility, but local water protectors say it took jet fuel running from the tap for people to demand change, despite billions of dollars 
in economic activity at stake. Meanwhile, in the lower 48, that's all of the United States, save for Alaska and Hawaii, the city of San Francisco has a new district attorney. Brooke Jenkins took the oath of office shortly after noon on Friday and laid out her priorities. That I will well and faithfully discharge. That I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties upon which. The duties upon which. I am about to enter. I am about to enter. And during such times. And during such times. Hold the office as district attorney. As I hold the office of district attorney. For the city and county of San Francisco. For the city and county of San Francisco. Congratulations, district attorney. The paramount mission of the district attorney's office is to promote public safety, and we cannot forget that. As the district attorney, I plan to restore the accountability and the consequences that have been lost in the criminal justice system in San Francisco. repeat offenders can no longer be allowed to victimize this city without any consequence. There have been a lot of misconceived notions about what I stood for when I fought to help us restore San Francisco. I want to be clear that holding offenders accountable does not mean that we cannot move forward with progressive criminal justice reform. And that was Brooke Jenkins, the new district attorney of San Francisco, she said she's heard the message that many San Franciscans don't feel safe in their own city and declared she's taking action against open-air drug markets on day one. Jenkins said, starting today, drug crime laws will be enforced in this city. Jenkins was appointed by San Francisco Mayor London Breed after a recall ousted her leftist predecessor, Chesa Boudin, the son of two 60s-era weather underground activists who spent years in jail for radical activist activities decades ago. After the swearing-in, Mayor Breed said that Jenkins is the right woman for the job. Breed said now San Francisco residents have to take a moment to see the impact the new district attorney will make on crime in the city. And across the nation, a crowd of women who marched to Joe Biden's front gate on Saturday found themselves dismissed as out of step by the president's top spokeswoman while battling unpredictable D.C. summer weather, heat, and a downpour. demanding that the federal government do something to legalize abortion now, that waiting till November is not enough. To be honest with you, I, I, I feel overwhelmed. I feel like um, for a myriad of reasons, I feel overwhelmed. Uh, the next step is just to keep fighting, right? Like just to keep fighting and keep moving forward and to keep raising our voices up um, because we deserve to be heard. The demonstration was organized by the Women's March, a movement that drew millions to the streets of the nation's capital and across the country the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated as president in 2017. The group has called for a summer of rage in response to the Supreme Court's overturning last month of Roe v. Wade, the landmark ruling that had enshrined abortion as a constitutional right for more than 50 years. Opponents of the march of the right to choose were also there, albeit in small numbers.
I'm asking basic questions here. I'm asking if they can showcase to me that the fetus is not a living person. No, they just tend it. We don't care if we murder people back there. They acknowledge that the fetus is a living being. Notice they can't answer the question. They rather mock and they rather insult because they don't have educated responses. They don't know why they do what they do. I mean, all it did was just let the government out of it. I mean, it goes back to the states where the states make the rule. So then if you don't like that rule in that state, guess what? Then you can move to the next state that actually promotes that. And I think that's I think that's fair. That was Codify Roe. Where's Your Wife? That earlier chant was directed at an older anti-abortion protester who is accompanying a young child. A protester who was at the demonstration in D.C. on Saturday is Samantha Goldman. She says the D.C. action was one of many across the country. I am an organizer with Rise Up for Abortion Rights, and we had a contingent within the action that was called for by the Women's March. I went down along with others from Philadelphia to be part of demanding legal abortion nationwide now. We were bringing this message to the White House yesterday. Something like 1,500, 1,800 beautiful people gathered in Franklin Square wanting to put their bodies on the line for abortion rights. People marched from Franklin Square to the White House, and once they were at the White House, Many people sat down and did a sit-in, while others tied bandanas onto the fence. The bandanas read, primarily bands off our bodies, and they were green bandanas, and they were, it was a nod to the green wave in Latin America, green, the international symbol of abortion rights. The women in Argentina and Colombia and Mexico, who despite tremendous odds, deeply patriarchal Catholic countries, took up the green and took to the streets and through their relentless, determined protest, decriminalized abortion in their country. It was a sea of green yesterday in D.C. outside the White House as people were tying these bandanas on, sitting in front of the White House and raising this demand. We had a banner in, in the middle that said legal abortion nationwide. Now, raising the demand. I was out there chanting it. As you can hear, my voice a little sore. For those who didn't want to participate in the nonviolent civil disobedience aspect where there was a risk of arrest, even though no arrests were actually made yesterday, considering how many people there were, I think that was part of it. What happened as far as nonviolent civil disobedience? Yeah, so as I was saying, the people who engaged in that nonviolent civil disobedience, they tied these bandanas onto the, the White House fence. That's nonviolent civil disobedience, tying bandanas <laughs> on a fence? I mean, I I wouldn't call it that, but I think that those who can see, there was, I guess, a possibility of a arrest for that. They, they have a lot they of power stop. to do what they want, to pick and choose who they arrest and what they want to arrest. In, Absolutely. In this... And in this case, there were so many. Mm -hmm. We're talking about at least a thousand participated in sitting down and not moving mm -hmm. in front of the White House for a considerable amount of time. What happened around the country? Protests were really called all over the country from big cities like New York to smaller towns like suburb in Pennsylvania that I didn't even know were participating. It was quite beautiful to see in Chicago, 
they had a march through the city, and while their main action wasn't counter-protesting, there was also a, a march for life, and there was a very large pro-choice counter-protest. Was there significant counter-protest? There were not significant in numbers, but for a considerable amount of the march from Franklin Square to the White House, there were anti-abortion forces with their big fetus signs around and then in Lafayette Park where I was there was a, a single person protest with just a, like a large fetus. There were some. It was overwhelmingly it was overwhelmingly people there who wanted to see action for abortion rights. Why the White House and not the Supreme Court, most of the protests being the Supreme Court or from following the justices around at their homes. The Supreme Court has made their decision. There are people in other branches of government that now are responsible for hearing this demand. And that includes the executive branch and the legislative branch. There is action that can be taken, but most importantly, there's action that must be taken at the federal level to restore legal abortion nationwide. And so that's why the demand is going to the seat of power where these decisions can be made. And that is Samantha Goldman from the Women's March. The Women's March is also urging President Biden to declare a national emergency that would allow the federal government to dedicate additional funds for abortion procedures. Other actions requested by the group include new federal guidance, increasing access to abortion pills and the leasing of federal land to abortion providers. The protesters marched through a light rain. At a gathering point, they listened to some beats. Many of those who marched in D.C. on Saturday had expected to be locked in jail, including Jessica Cavalier. She drove eight hours from Charlotte on Friday with her husband and mother-in-law and packed $50 in cash in case she was required to post bail. As of this report, there have been no reported arrests.